Why did the Supreme Court put on hold a federal district court order requiring the state of Alabama to draw another black majority congressional district? What does the state order in Merrill v. Milligan mean for the future of the Voting Rights Act? Are minority voting rights under threat by new arguments to weaken the act? On Season 3, Episode 6 of the ELB Podcast, we speak with NAACP Legal Defense Fund's Senior Counsel and Director of Development, Duelle Ross. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. On February 7th, 2022, the United States Supreme Court stayed a lower court order in the case of Merrill versus Milligan that would have required the state of Alabama to draw a second black majority congressional district. The case has generated a lot of confusion in part because the Supreme Court majority did not explain why it put this order on hold. And joining us to sort it all out is one of the leading lawyers working on the case on the side of the plaintiffs, Dual Ross of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I thought we would start, since not everyone is an expert in the Voting Rights Act, with an explanation of what your lawsuit was trying to do, what the three-judge district court did in a very lengthy opinion, and you know, how things ended up getting to the Supreme Court. Sure. So the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and, and our colleagues at the ACLU brought a lawsuit challenging uh, Alabama's congressional redistricting. Um, so after the 2020 census data was made available uh, towards the end of last year, Alabama redistricted. Uh, it has seven congressional districts, um, only one of which is majority black. Um, that means that black voters have essentially uh, control of 14% of Alabama's seven congressional districts, even though black voters in Alabama make up about 27, 28% of the state's uh, voting age population. Alabama has a really egregious history of racial discrimination in voting, as most folks know. And Alabama also has really stark racially polarized voting, um, which I assume your voters know, but if they do not, it essentially means that black voters tend to vote for black candidates and white voters tend to vote for white candidates. And that's true in Alabama, whether you're talking about Democratic primaries, Republican primaries, general elections, you know, this this pattern of stark racially polarized voting occurs uh, across the elections there. And so um, under uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, those facts generally, the fact that black voters are underrepresented, that there is racially polarized voting, and finally that it's possible to draw a second compact majority black district mean that uh, Alabama's uh, congressional districts in, uh, very likely violated the Voting Rights Act. And so we brought a lawsuit challenging that on behalf of uh, black voters in Alabama because we also challenged Alabama's redistricting scheme as an unconstitutional racial gerrymander as well as uh, the product of intentional racial discrimination, uh, we were in front of a three-judge court. And so those three judges, uh, after very quick schedule of discovery uh, ahead of a preliminary injunction hearing, heard seven days of evidence in January and issued a 225-page opinion, essentially saying that it's very likely that our clients were going to win on the Section 2 claim. And not reaching the other two claims. Exactly. So we hadn't actually presented evidence on an intentional discrimination claim, and uh, we presented some evidence of our racial gerrymandering claim. The court basically uh, applied a a very long-standing doctrine of constitutional avoidance and uh, declined to rule on our our constitutional claims. 
before we get to what the Supreme Court did, let's just take apart these three different claims, because I think it's very confusing to people, even people in the election law field who are not steeped in uh, the details of this. So the Section 2 claim essentially requires you to meet the jingles threshold test and a totality of the circumstances test. I'll just lay that out here, and then you can kind of explain how your other two claims differ. So under jingles, you've got to show that the protected minority group is large enough in in terms of population and sufficiently geographically compact so that you could create a a single member district, or in your case, another single member district, that the minority group votes cohesively for candidates of their choice, and that the white majority usually defeats the candidates. And then if if that's met, then you go on to a multi-part totality of the circumstances test to figure out if there's a violation, and and the usual remedy is drawing another district, as, as the court did here. How do your racial gerrymandering and intentional racial discrimination claims differ from that and differ from each other? Right. So under the Section 2 analysis that you just laid out, all the plaintiffs have to show is that um, the challenged election system has a discriminatory result or discriminatory effect. So you don't have to prove that anyone was a racist or acted with discriminatory intent or anything else uh, with respect to uh, why they drew the district lines. Um, With our intentional discrimination claim, you do have to prove that the legislature in this case, when they drew the district lines, they did so essentially to, with the purpose of diluting the vote of black voters, of making it more difficult for black voters to elect candidates of their choice. And that involves a lot of evidence, um, which on a preliminary injunction uh, hearing, we were not necessarily prepared to present. It also involves, you know, looking back at probably at least 30 years of Alabama history about why people did what they did. Um, And so that is the constitutional claim with respect to intent we simply didn't address. Our other claim was a a racial gerrymandering claim. That claim is also brought under the Constitution. It is uh, the result of uh, a series of Supreme Court cases in the 1990s, uh, beginning with a case called Shaw which essentially say that uh, when legislatures, when states or or anyone else draws majority black districts, they have to do so uh, in a way that is narrowly tailored to comply with the constitution. um, And they have to do it for a reason. So you can't, uh, basically, when you're drawing a majority black district or any majority minority district, you A, can't use race too much. Race can't be the predominant reason why you drew a district the way you drew it. Um, and then if you do, even if you do draw a district that, uh, where race predominates, as the Supreme Court has said, then you have to do it in a way that's narrowly tailored to comply with uh, compelling state interests. And the primary compelling state interest is compliance with the Voting Rights Act. And so what we said in our case is that Alabama, when they drew the existing majority black district, and right now it's about 55% black voting age population in, in District 7, the existing majority black district, with about 60% of the registered voters in that district are, are African-American. That essentially Alabama packed that district, that they drew a large number of black voters into that district, far more than were necessary for um, Representative Sewell, who's currently elected from that district, to to continue to get elected. So it's essentially... The difference between that and our Section 2 claim is essentially, in our Section 2 claim, we also have allegations that that the existing district is packed. Um, And the remedy in the Section 2 case is that you get two majority Black districts. 
The remedy in a racial gerrymandering case is essentially the state used race too much. The state didn't narrowly tailor its use of race. And the remedy there is essentially uh, an unpacking of the majority black district with no guarantee of a, any kind of second majority black or opportunity district. Um, and so that's sort of the basics of the sort of differences and relationships between those two claims. So now Alabama's not satisfied. This decision is unlike many decisions that come out of three judge courts. This one happens to be unanimous. It has two judges appointed by uh, President Trump and a Democratic appointed judge, but they all agree under existing law, you got to draw that second district. So Alabama ultimately wants to appeal this case, but they seek emergency relief in the Supreme Court. And what, what does Alabama argue in the Supreme Court? Yeah, so, you know, as, as you said, it, it was a unanimous decision by judges appointed by presidents of both parties. And what Alabama did in, its, in seeking a stay with the Supreme Court is essentially they, they argued two things. One, they said it was too close to the election uh, for any changes to Alabama's congressional districts to take place, even though Alabama's elections are not until uh, May 24th. And uh, the primary is not until May 24th. The general election is obviously not until early November. Um, and so we're talking four and 10 months away, essentially. Two, also on and sort of this idea that Alabama's elections were too close. Alabama only enacted this uh, congressional map in November of last year. Uh, and the three-judge court came out with its decision in January. So it's sort of a, a similar time frame in which Alabama even enacted this map yeah, to say that it's, it's too late is surprising and, and disingenuous on behalf of the state. Um, the other thing that Alabama argued was essentially that, as you mentioned, in order to win a Section 2 claim, you have to draw uh, or propose a number of potential remedies, right? So you have to show it's possible to draw a second majority black district in a way that's compact and complies with the state's traditional redistricting principles. Um, and so what our expert did is she drew four maps. Um, another set of plaintiffs had an expert who drew, uh, I think, eight or nine maps um, that all showed that it's possible to draw an additional majority black district, particularly by focusing on an area of Alabama that's called the Black Belt. Um, so in Alabama, uh, and in fact, across from basically from Maryland through Texas, across the entire United States, there's an area that's called the Black Belt is an area that has very rich black soil. Um, and that's the original reason why it was called the Black Belt. Um, but because it had rich black soil and it went through the American South, it is also a region that has um, a number of majority black counties because that is where African-Americans were brought when they were enslaved in the antebellum period. And so in Alabama, it is still true today that there are these counties that run across the middle of the state that are majority African-American. Um, those counties are split between four congressional districts right now. And under the plans that we were proposing, essentially those counties would be in uh, the two majority black districts. We also drew the plans, our expert also drew the plans in a way that was more compact than the state's own plans that you know didn't split uh, incumbents. And that on any sort of objective metric was at least as good, if not better than the state with respect to things like splitting counties or splitting municipalities. So despite all of that, what Alabama argued was because our expert in a, a paper that was written before the release of the 2020 census data, and so it was based on the 2010 census data, she had 
basically run a simulation that said, if you only look at sort of geometric shapes in terms of compactness, then you can only get one majority black district. And what Alabama said uh, was, aha, if you can only draw one majority black district, then it is, uh, you are engaging in a racial gerrymander when you draw a second majority black district. You know, there wasn't a lot of testimony at trial about this. It really, as I think Justice Kagan pointed out, it took up about three or four pages of trial transcript. Uh, the state of Alabama didn't even introduce this article that she had written into evidence. They simply asked her one question about it. And when they asked our expert, whose name is Dr. Moon Dushin, you know, using race neutral criteria, would it be possible to run a simulation that would draw two majority black districts? And she said, yes, uh, it certainly is possible. And so that is sort of the extent of Alabama's argument was uh, to summarize. Basically, they said, if you cannot use computer simulations to draw two majority black districts, then the fact that plaintiffs drew two majority black districts was uh, basically they use race in an unconstitutional way. And therefore, there can be no remedy here, even if there is a Section 2 violation. So that suggests that both sides are claiming that whatever is done is going to be a racial gerrymander, which is kind of an interesting statement about the racial gerrymandering cause of action. It is. And I think it's also, you know, important to note that even if, you know, A, we certainly don't think that our our maps were a racial gerrymander. Um, As I said, uh, we complied with the state's own redistricting criteria better than the state's current map does. But even if uh, something is a racial gerrymander, that's only the first part of the question, right? So the second part is, is it narrowly tailored to comply with the compelling state interest in, in the Voting Rights Act? And here, the the three-judge court, even though they said, like, look, this is not a racial gerrymander, but they went through a second analysis and said, even if it is a racial gerrymander, it is narrowly tailored in a way that complies with the Voting Rights Act, uh, with this compelling state interest in complying with the Voting Rights Act. And so that was basically Alabama's argument on appeal was it's too close to the election and uh, plaintiffs' proposed remedies are a racial gerrymander. What happened with the Supreme Court is essentially five justices voted um, to stay uh, the remedial relief, which means that there will not be a new congressional map in Alabama for the 2022 elections. Four judges voted to deny the stay. And so three of the justices, Justice uh, Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, and Justice uh, Amy Conan Barrett uh, basically did not explain why they were they were voting for the stay. Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence that Justice Alito joined in, essentially said that it is too close to the election uh, for any sort of remedy. Justice Roberts, interestingly, I think in the first time he's ever voted for Section 2 plaintiffs in a case, um, said that the district court applied the proper existing standard but that he is open to essentially changing the standard for Section 2 cases. And three justices, Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor, uh, said that, you know, applying existing precedent, plaintiffs, as the district court repeatedly said, uh, absolutely are entitled to a remedy for the 2022 elections. All right, so let's take apart the, the two different strands here, right? So we don't, as you said, it's on the shadow docket, right? It's, this is yeah. coming on an emergency motion. We're reading tea leaves. We don't have a majority opinion, but we do know that 
what the result is, is that there's going to be at least one election that's going to be run potentially in violation of the Voting Rights Act and in violation of the Constitution. So we've got two different arguments, one about the Purcell principle, um, this idea that if you make changes close to an election, it can cause voter confusion and election administrator confusion. Uh, the other argument being uh, on the merits of, of the Voting Rights Act. I want to get to those merits in a second, but let's talk about the Purcell principle for a minute. I've written about this a lot, and I think that it's never been applied by the Supreme Court in a redistricting case before. Um, so even putting aside the fact that the primary is not till May, courts regularly move primaries. Uh, this does seem to be a kind of broad extension that would be like a you get one unconstitutional or one illegal uh, gerrymander first uh, kind of rule. Uh, am I am I understanding that right? No, I think that's right, and I think you know. Purcell was a case that arose within the context of a challenge to a voter ID law. Um, I think it was in 2008 or so. Um, And it has been applied primarily to prevent changes to, uh, you know, sort of election administration issues. So voter ID requirements, absentee voting requirements, things like that. So in the 2020 elections, I lived through this, the Supreme Court uh, repeatedly blocked district court decisions that had expanded absentee voting or made it easier for people to vote absentee during the pandemic. Um, and the justification was for that was, look, it's too close to the election. It's confusing for people to uh, basically, at one point, think they have to have a photo ID. At another point, they don't have to have a photo ID. And so uh, the Supreme Court sort of stepped in and said, like, uh, no, we're going to apply whatever was the last rule. The court tried to be consistent, or at least uh, said they were being consistent in saying if in the last election there was no witness requirement, in this case in Rhode Island, then there would be no witness requirement for the um, fall elections. Um, so, yes, it's correct that it's never been applied, at least to my understanding, in the redistricting context. Uh, the Supreme Court, in a number of decisions in the last five to ten years, has actually uh, denied stays in redistricting litigation, both under Section 2 and under um, the Constitution. And that's because, as you said, you know, in redistricting cases, really, you're only talking about, like, who's going to be affected, right? Um, A few congressional candidates who need to know when their filing deadline is. In Alabama, no one has ever voted under these maps, so these maps are no more confusing than the new maps that Alabama is enacting. Um, and courts have a lot more leeway to do things like change the election date, right? If it's too close for the May primary, well, then the primary can be moved back to June. There's no, you know, there's nothing sacred about a May primary. States have their primaries as late as September, October. And so it is, I think, disheartening to see the Supreme Court expand Purcell um, and do so again on the shadow docket uh, without full briefing without oral argument, you know, on the full briefing point, Alabama filed its motion for stay on a Thursday or Friday and the Supreme Court gave us until a Wednesday to file a response, right? This is not folks having a lot of time to think these things through, nor does the court have a lot of time to think these things through and and to sort of really address the consequences of of the decisions that it's issuing. Um, And so it it was surprising and I think disheartening. um, And I think it speaks to the fact, obviously, that uh, Chief Justice Roberts voted to deny the stay because that's consistent with what the Supreme Court has been doing um, recently with respect to redistricting cases. All right. So so let's turn then 
finally to the merits. This is what you're going to end up having to brief. I'm assuming given the timing of the year, we're already in February, probably this case won't be argued until the fall, meaning we might get a decision around a year from now, if we're lucky, maybe uh, not until a year from June. So it struck me in reading uh, Alabama's brief before we even got the court's decision on the stay that they were turning the Voting Rights Act on its head. They were saying that in jingle step one, and just a reminder, that's where you have to establish that the protected minority group is large enough in terms of population and geographically compact enough that you could draw a single member district. And we know that compact now means reasonably compact, thanks to a, a number of these racial gerrymandering cases. So they basically, you wouldn't ha- you wouldn't necessarily be able to draw a far flung or district that would bring together people who have disparate socioeconomic backgrounds or, or this geographically in a very weird shape. But Alabama seemed to be arguing that you could only meet jingle section one if you applied race neutral districting principles to do that. And uh, if you, by serendipity, happened to draw a, a district that had a majority of minority voters, well, that, then that's great. And it seemed to me that that, was, uh, that would essentially defeat the entire purpose and certainly would go against Congress's intent when it amended section two in 1982 to deal with racial gerrymandering and vote dilution that was going on in Mobile, Alabama, in the case of City of Mobile versus Bolden. I mean, it seems like it's, you know, we've already seen in the Brnovich case, we're rolling back to 1982. I feel like we're going through a time machine. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but it does seem like Alabama was arguing for uh, this kind of back to the future reading of the Voting Rights Act that would essentially neuter it. It is true that Alabama seems to be arguing, and, it, and it's, frankly, it's a little unclear exactly what they are arguing, right? Because they have to, and they are talking out both sides of their mouth to say like, oh, look, you have to apply entirely race-neutral redistricting criteria in order to draw a majority-minority district that complies with the Voting Rights Act. But one of the things that they, they didn't harp on too much is that we have a racial gerrymandering claim, right? And so the more they attack our uh, our our districts, the more the better our racial gerrymandering claim looks. But look, putting that aside, Alabama is essentially saying like under the first jingles precondition, you have to show that it's possible to draw a majority minority district. And Alabama is saying that anytime you set out to actually achieve that goal, which is to to draw a majority minority district, you're engaging in racial gerrymandering. Um, And what they also, basically they're saying that you should be able to draw a majority minority district, but do it entirely race blind. So it's like the idea of, you know, throwing uh, throwing a dart at a, at a dartboard and uh, closing your eyes and expecting you to hit bullseye. And if you don't hit bullseye, then you lose. Right. Um, it's really is impossible. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are maybe some places in the country where you could, uh, you know, randomly come up with a majority minority district. I think, in fact, Alabama, as I said, our, our expert testified that Alabama is one of them where she thinks that her, her maps would come up uh, using race neutral criteria. Um, and that's because the black community in Alabama is so concentrated. But it, it really puts into danger not just the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act, but any time that a a state legislature or a county commissioner or a city council decides to draw a majority black district, um, you know, it's essentially throwing those all into uh, constitutional doubt under Alabama's 
um, standard. And that's something that the Supreme Court in all of its racial gerrymandering cases has said, we don't want to hamper states' ability to to draw these districts. Uh, and that's why they've come up with sort of this, this racial predominance theory. But under Alabama's theory, it's sort of any time you even think about race, a congressional district or a state legislative district, any majority black district is is in danger. You know, according to the analysis of uh, Nick Stephanopoulos and Joey Chen, this kind of race neutral approach to the Voting Rights Act, which itself seems kind of oxymoronic, would result in less minority representation, especially in the South. I just want to close our discussion by just cataloging what I consider to be a new wave of what used to be kind of off the wall arguments about the Voting Rights Act that seem to be gaining some traction in the courts, I think. And that's because there's a six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court. I mean, even Chief Justice Roberts, as you mentioned, who didn't want to go along with the stay, said the lower court properly applied existing law, said, yeah, maybe we should rethink jingles. But, you know, so, you know, other things we've seen on this list of uh, besides apply jingles race neutrally uh, argument, we've got there is no private right of action argument. Uh, we've got that Section 2 doesn't apply to redistricting argument. And we've got, uh, and this is, I think, close to what where, where Alabama's hinting it's going, uh, the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional because it's race conscious argument. So, you know, just pulling away from this case for a minute and just reflecting now on where we are with these kinds of arguments, are you surprised about these arguments coming out now? And where do you think all of this is going to end up? Yeah, I mean, I think that the reality is, is that we're in a period right now where um, where things in flux, right? So uh, there is a new majority on the Supreme Court. And so people are, uh, defendants are throwing a lot of things out there to, to see what sticks. And there's also, you know, it's after the 2020 census data has been released. So there's a lot of redistricting cases out there, um, many of which are in front of three judge courts, some of which are in front of single judge courts. Um, and there, uh, you know, some of them have facts like Alabama, where uh, racially polarized voting is is out of control and it's very easy to draw a second majority black district. And some are, are, are different and maybe have, um, you know, a little bit weaker facts. And so I think that the reality is, is that over the next few years, we're going to see a lot of cases go up to the Supreme Court on a lot of different theories. Um, I am hopeful on on all of these things. I think that, you know, as to the the private right of action under the Voting Rights Act, there's several references within the text of the Voting Rights Act to uh, the rights and remedies for aggrieved persons or the Department of Justice. And uh, Congress very explicitly said when they were amending the Voting Rights Act to add that language in 1975 and 1982, that they were doing so to make clear that remedies were available to private individuals as well as the Department of Justice. And so, you know, even if you're looking at it strictly from a, a view of statutory interpretation, um, I think there is clearly a private right of action. And even though obviously Justice Thomas in a recent concurrence said, and Justice Gorsuch joined him, questioned whether there was a private right of action um, in, a, in a case from the 1990s, uh, even Justice Thomas agreed that um, the Voting Rights Act does contain a private right of action, at least for some claims. So, you know, I do think that it's a, perhaps a, a bridge too far on that private right of action claim. Um, and I also think, you know, even with respect to redistricting, again, another thing that, that Justice Thomas has very often uh, touched upon, the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act, as you pointed out, were entirely designed 
to address racial discrimination in redistricting, primarily designed to address it. The language in there explicitly says that Section 2 does not create a right to proportionate representation. And so what does that mean except for that it applies to redistricting and that this uh, Congress was trying to limit even that application to, to redistricting? And so, you know, obviously there are judges and justices who believe in these very extreme views of the Voting Rights Act, but I think that both the statutory text and decades of precedent sort of foreclose even those extreme arguments from from reaching majority. That doesn't mean that the court won't find uh, other ways to weaken the Voting Rights Act, but even Justice Kavanaugh and Alito uh, and Justice Roberts as well in their in their concurring opinions related to the stay, each of them said that the plaintiffs and the defendants essentially have a 50-50 chance of winning. And so I take the justices at their word in that uh, they're willing to hear out the plaintiff's argument after full briefing and oral argument. Well, I mean, I think there's one prediction we can make pretty confidently, which is that you're going to be a very busy person over the next <laughs> few years. I think that's very true. Well, Joel Ross of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, thank you so much for explaining this to us. And we'll be watching very closely as this case proceeds. And I wish you well uh, before this court. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And thank you again for having me. The AOB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UC Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The producer of the AOB podcast is Melody Rowell. I'm Rick Hassan. Please join us again next time.